Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I don't know, but if you are like me this morning, uh, your heart is pretty full right now. Uh, there's something. I was talking to a few people this week about the video uh, that uh, we show every year, and it doesn't matter if you know the kids or not. Like uh, there's just kind of that instant, uh, you know, the, the tears in the eyes, and then especially for parents, uh, parents of the the. the kids themselves, but then parents who just have kids who are growing up or maybe have grown up. Uh, I was sitting over here and the, and the thought of my children someday being there uh, kind of sent me into a tailspin for a second. Uh, but man, uh, my heart is full this morning and I hope yours is too. Uh, let's begin today with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we lay at your feet all of those things that we have brought into this room with us. And we lay them at the altar and we say that everything that is ours, both those that we are very proud of and those things that we are not so proud of, Lord, we hand them back to you. You are a God who knows what to do with them. And God, in this moment, release, we release ourselves to you. We open our hearts to you as full as they are. And we ask that you come and you speak to us this morning. That you dwell in there and, and you dust out the old dusty places. And that you breathe a new life in the corners of our hearts that haven't seen you in a while. And that you speak a word. A word, Lord, that makes its way deep down into us and refuses to leave. Refuses to do anything but change us from the inside out. We desire that presence this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Uh, today I want to spend most of my time in the Exodus passage. So if you will, uh, let's turn there together again. And we'll look at uh, Exodus starting in chapter 3. Uh, really today, we're going to spend a lot of time uh, looking at Exodus both uh, in its, uh, like a close-up, uh, but then I, I kind of want to give you a, a big sweeping picture uh, of this book. I think it's one of the more important books uh, in the entirety, certainly of the Old Testament, maybe the Bible itself. Uh, I think it gives something of a, um, a, a macro-level a picture uh, of the story of God's salvation as it appears again and again and again throughout our scriptures. But let's read together, starting uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you don't know the, the story of Exodus, uh, it begins in the first two chapters. We meet uh, a man named Moses, uh, and Moses, uh, of course, there's... Uh, <laughs> A lot to say about Moses, I guess, but uh, he is saved uh, miraculously. He grows up uh, among the Egyptian elite, uh, and then he, uh, he slays a man uh, and runs uh, and finds himself in the desert place, right? Uh, and meanwhile, Israel uh, is in bondage, all of them, uh, to the Egyptians. Uh, and so there's a real problem here. That is, Israel is uh, in bondage. Moses is on the run. And in this setting, we get this story. Moses 
is probably in a place he's been many times. It's a place called Mount Horeb. Uh, and he's just walking along, and we get this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush isn't burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And let's pause here a second. Moses has this encounter with God. This is a critical turning point in all of the biblical narrative. God comes down to this one man, Moses, and he says, You are standing on holy ground. In the future, we need to talk about this word holy, kadesh, because it turns out this word uh, is used and is sometimes translated as sanctuary. Sanctuary. In fact, if you think of the word like holy of holies, right, uh, is a place inside the sanctuary. It's the, the holiest of the holy place inside that sanctuary, that Kadesh, right? And so here Moses is, is on uh, this holy ground, and, and in a way God has come to him and created this momentary sanctuary space where Moses is opened up to the presence of God, and he's able to receive something from God in a way uh, that, well, it's been a while since Yahweh has spoken to anybody, right? The last we heard back in Genesis, at the end of Genesis, we've got Joseph and, and his brothers, and at this point, they're just a, it's a family. But somewhere between Joseph and his brothers and the beginning of the book of Exodus, you have an explosion of the population of the people of Israel or the people uh, of Abraham, and they somehow also become enslaved, right? And so it seems we don't know the, the backstory. We don't know what happens between Genesis and Exodus. But God has not been on the scene for a while. And he has to come to Moses, and he has to remind Israel who he is, the kind of God he is, and exactly what he wants to do for these people. And we get this story. But it's in this next verse that I really want to hone in on what's happening. Verse 7 and following, we find this. Then the Lord said, I have, sure, uh, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I don't know anything about the ites. Uh, 
But there are some really important verbs that precede this. And I think it tells us a lot about who this God is and the way this God works, the way our God is and our God works. We get six, actually, six verbs sit here. And the, the first three are God observing. And God says this, right? We just read it. He has seen, right? He has seen the affliction of his people. And then he has, he has heard their cry. And he knows, he understands their suffering, right? He has seen, and he has understood, and heard, and he's understood. But that's not where it stops. We do have a God who pays attention, who is attentive to the needs of his people, right? And he, he knows when, when you and I are in a place of, of bondage or of suffering, and whatever that might be. And this morning, my guess is all of us come in with something on our hearts, something that has, has dragged us down to one degree or another. Many of us in a place that has brought us quite low, in fact. And so if that's you this morning, we do have a God who has seen, who has heard, and who has understood exactly where you are. But here's the good news. Is, is this not where it stops, is it? It keeps going. The story keeps going, and the verbs keep going, and so God has a plan. And so he says in verse 8, and so I have come down. So if the first three are God making observations, he's, he's hearing and he's seeing and he's understanding things, well, now he's ready to come down and to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and with honey, right? And so we get God's action plans. He is ready to come down. He is ready to deliver, and he is ready to bring them up. The point of the Exodus narrative, broadly put, is this, that God is moving his people from bondage to freedom, right? In many ways, it's quite simple. God is moving his people from bondage, slavery, to a place of freedom. But that's actually not what I want to talk about this morning, because I think there's something that gets missed in this way of casting it. Because God is not just moving people out of their bondage. I actually believe that God is moving them to something. We are not just freed from something, we're actually freed to something. We've been talking about sanctuary for a few weeks now, and we will continue to talk about sanctuary for a while. And if I could say it in one word, then, what is God moving us to? God is moving us to sanctuary. That is what the book of Exodus is pointing to as a whole. Here's how I'm going to make this case. I want to teach you something about the book of Exodus, and I want you to pay attention. I don't want you to glaze over. This is actually important stuff. The book of Exodus is 40 chapters long. Now, 
those chapter numbers are not inspired by God, but the, the book as a whole is, and it turns out the, the people who put in these chapter numbers, they don't always get it quite right, but I actually like the way they've put in the chapters for the book of Exodus. It works well. And there's three movements to this book, okay? So when you think of the book of Exodus, what do you think of in your mind? I'm going to guess that you think of, well, the movement from bondage uh, to freedom, right? That is probably what you think of. You think of Pharaoh, and you think of let my people go, and you think of Moses, and you think of ten plagues, and you think of crossing the Red Sea, and you would be right. But that only gets us to chapter 14. That's all that gets us to, right? And so we've got a lot of chapters left in the book of Exodus, and it's worth asking, one, what's in them, and, and two, why are they there? Because I think the whole of Exodus has something to teach us. And so the three movements go like this. The first movement is the movement of the Exodus from Egypt, which is exactly what I just described. As I said, that gets us through chapter 14, and then chapter 15 is simply a, a song of victory about this. Then begins movement number two. Again, stay with me. Movement number two is a critical juncture. It sits at the center of the book of Exodus. It goes like this. This is where God has taken his people out of bondage, and now he has set them up to make a deal, to make a covenant with them. And he says, you know now what kind of God I am, and I'm ready to make a deal with you because I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And they say yes. And then at the center of the center of the book of Exodus, we have chapter 20, right? Remember, I said it's 40 chapters long, and at the center of it all sits chapter 20, which is the rules of the road. This is the rules of the covenant, the rules of the deal, and it's what you guess it is, it's the Ten Commandments, right? It's the Ten Commandments. And so at the centerpiece of all of this sits this covenant with God. And so from chapters 16 to about 24, stick with me, we have this covenant piece. All right. You might already know all of these things as well, but I'm not yet to my real point. So we have three movements in this book. We have the exodus, what God takes us out of. We have the covenant, the deal that God wants to strike with us. And then we have the rest of the book, 26 to 40, which is a whole lot of chapters, right? And do you know what these chapters are about? They are a very specific description of the tabernacle, of all things, the tabernacle the sanctuary, the place where God dwells with humanity. This is what we get. And fun fact that I think is also a really important fact, the number of chapters that it takes for God to tell us about the sanctuary, about the tabernacle itself, that is the same amount of chapters it took to tell the story of the exodus of Egypt. That's how important it is. And so here's what I submit to you. 
It's not enough for us to be freed from slavery. That, in some ways, is a bit of a narcissistic view of religion, and certainly there is this view of Christianity as well, that we are simply freed from our sin, freed from our past, freed from death. But I actually think there's something more happening. We are freed from that yes, and we make a covenant, and we are freed into something as well. We are freed toward something. We're freed toward becoming people who dwell with the holy God. This is what he's setting up for us. This is what the whole book of Exodus sets up for us. Freedom from and freedom to. The book of Exodus is, as I've said, not just about freedom from. Israel being freed from Egypt, Israel being freed from bondage, you and I being freed from our own bondage, freedom from is only one half of the story. They are being freed to. They are being freed to sanctuary with God. And it is this second half that they actually mess up quite frequently throughout the whole Old Testament. In fact, they even mess it up there in the story of Exodus itself. And so if you were to look in Exodus 32, in this part where God is trying to free them to sanctuary, to being and dwelling with God, what story do we find? We find the golden calf story, where Israel has set up this false version of God, where they think that they are dwelling with quote, God, because they have set up some sort of golden idol. And God almost dismantles the whole thing, and, and Moses has to uh, rally around Israel and say, no, God, trust me, uh, this is the kind of people they are, but I, I think we can still work with them, and God relents. At the end of 32, God decides to go ahead and continue forward with the plan. And so they mess things up with this golden idol. And I think the story itself sits there for a variety of reasons, but at the very least, it reminds us that Israel is being freed from bondage in order that they might be freed to live with God, to live and worship Him, and to live lives that are indeed pleasing to Him. Which again in my shorthand, is to say that they are being freed to sanctuary. That's what they are being freed to. They're being freed to create sanctuary. And when I think of sanctuary, and in this instance, I think it fits actually quite nicely, and we will probably continue in through the book of Exodus as the weeks go on here, because these critical chapters at the end of Exodus provide a lot of fruitful dialogue for what it means to be a sanctuary. But I think it's three ways, and I've said them before, but it's worth repeating them again. Sanctuary in space, that is the tabernacle itself, the space of the sanctuary. Sanctuary in time, which has to do with the Sabbath. And if you were to read these chapters, you would notice that the seventh thing that Moses commands regarding the tabernacle 
is always about the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath is clearly part of this as well. And so we have sanctuary in space, we have sanctuary in time, and we have sanctuary in the people themselves. God calls them in the book of Exodus to be a priestly nation. A priestly nation, right? Which means they themselves are to embody sanctuary, to embody the person of God as they interact with one another, as they interact with nations that are around them. This is who they are supposed to be. They are supposed to be a people of God dwelling on a place dedicated to God in time that is dedicated to God, which is to say that it is all God's, right? This is what's happening here. If I can say it one more time, here's a critical point. I believe that God has a vision and a mission for Israel that extends well beyond mere freedom. Freedom is just the beginning. God's vision is for a redeemed people in a redeemed space and in a redeemed time. And I don't know about you, but that is a vision that I can get behind. In Exodus 3, our passage for today, God starts with this very small patch of land, this small patch of holy ground, right, where he meets Moses and he tells Moses the plan. And it's this little sanctuary moment that is indeed momentary and it's fleeting And God's plan indeed includes the freedom of his enslaved people. But the plan is not just that. It's that that patch of holy ground where Moses is meeting with God, that it, well, it grows. And then it grows and it grows so that the nation of Israel might inhabit a land flowing with milk and with honey that is intended to be holy ground the land of Israel itself was meant to be holy ground. Their land was to be a sanctuary. And on that land, they are to put a physical representation of God's presence in the form of a tabernacle, a sanctuary. And they are to live in and among God's very presence. They are to be holy ground to be the priestly nation, to be the sanctuary in the world. I believe that God was, back then, God is in the here and now, and God will always be in the business of sanctuary building. I think this is what God does. And I would venture to say that this story, the sanctuary building story, It shows up over and over and over again throughout your scriptures. I think this is uh, one of these archetypal stories that shows up so many times, it's probably easy to miss. Maybe you even take it for granted. But it sure says a lot about the sort of people that we're supposed to be in this life. 
We are to be a sanctuary people, building spaces of sanctuary, redeeming the time that is indeed around us. Now a quick word to our graduates, because it is graduation day. You are entering a window of life where you will soon have to make some big decisions about the rest of your life. What you major in in college dictates the job you get, the career you have, the income you make, and so much more. No pressure, right? But I want to encourage you to think about all of this in terms of vocation. What is your vocation? Which is to say, what is your calling? And sometimes when we think about our calling in life, it quickly goes astray if you think too mystically about it. If you wait for that still small voice in your ear and you say, yes, that is my calling. I kind of want to get you back to ground level a second and suggest to you that instead, I believe that God has created you to be a certain kind of person. Your job in the next few years is to figure out what kind of person God has created you to be and to live into that. Yet again, no pressure. (laughs) It's actually a pretty big task, and the adults in the room can attest to that. It's taken me 41 years, and I think I'm starting to get a handle of who I am. And some days I wake up and I rethink the whole thing. But I actually want to talk about a second kind of calling. Because as important as that one kind of calling is, and it is a lifelong process, and I think, I firmly believe, you should be in the business of trying to figure that one out, there is a calling that I've been talking about throughout this entire sermon today that I think we are all called to. And we have two callings in life. We have this one vocational calling that says, well, this is my unique space in the world. This is who I am and the way God has created me and the way I give to this world. And then the second calling is the one that we are all called to as children of God as Christians, as Christ followers, as people who have gone through the waters of baptism, have died with Christ, and have been raised with Christ, and is a vocation of, I'll just say it again, sanctuary. We are people who are called into the same calling that Israel was called into throughout the Exodus story. A people who are called out of freedom, or out of bondage, into freedom, and into a place where we dwell with God regularly. But just as importantly, we become representations of people who dwell with God to the world that is around us. We become that priestly nation. We become that sanctuary. We become the very dwelling place of God in the middle of the world. So graduates, I don't know what your personal uh, unique calling is in this life, but I can surely attest that we are all called to that other kind of calling, a calling that requires, frankly, all of us, all that I am, all that God has gifted me with, 
that I might serve him daily. Let's pray. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, maker of all that is in it, including us, we are your creation. And you have designed us each in unique ways. And you have gifted each of us with special gifts and special callings. But God, in the midst of all of that, you call us together that we might be your servants in this world, that we might be your sanctuary because others will find you in us. God, I pray that this be so among our three graduates this morning. I pray that you fill them with your spirit in such a way that they are shining stars in this world. I pray, Lord, that you fill them in such a way that when people interact with them, and get to know them, that they see the very face of Christ in them. God, I pray that for all of us, for our church, South Run Baptist Church, that we too might be the face of Christ to a world that needs you. And I pray that we be a sanctuary to the community that is around us and to the world that is around us, who is most certainly watching and looking for a God who will save. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.